Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm John Levenstein, and you're listening to a special Earwolf Presents, where we pay tribute to my first boss, Michael Nesmith. This was originally the final episode of my podcast, John Levenstein's Retirement Party. I don't think I would have done this show at all if I hadn't known Michael was willing to be interviewed. Michael Nesmith died last week at the age of 78. I recalled that in our interview, he talked about mortality. It was interesting at the time, but now I'm hoping some of you might even find it comforting. Good, you're early. Welcome to John Levenstein's Retirement Party. I'm Mary Kobayashi, and this episode is all about Michael Nesmith, John's former boss and monkey and one of my very favorite musicians. We'll also talk to Watkins Family Hour's Sarah Watkins, and Nick Kroll will fill in for me to interview Jack Handy. We met Michael for breakfast at the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles. I never met Douglas Adams through you, <clears throat> but like I can only imagine what your conversations were like. Were they Was it one endless conversation, basically? It was one endless conversation, but it was one hilarious endless conversation because he was very very funny he was not funny like john cleese which just bedeviled him because he wanted to be john cleese and i he and i had conversation after conversation douglas you're not john cleese you're never going to be john cleese you are douglas adams and that is a little miracle on this earth we're here with michael nesmith my first boss hello everyone I was writing back and forth with Jack Handy about when I worked for you on the TV show Television Parts in the 80s, short films with stand-up comics where we were trying to do for comedy what MTV had done for music. Now, we had a lot of video games. Which, as you say it like that, it's a good idea. There were video games in the conference room where you and I had a missile command competition. Right. Now, Jack Handy opted out of the competition I thought he played Centipede. I think he Faced with a chance to talk about the influential TV show he wrote for Michael in the 80s that featured Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, and Whoopi Goldberg, or pursue a 30-year-old video game grudge, John pursued the grudge. At Sunset Gower, he walked past a single Teamster on strike every day. But I don't know what that entrance was, and I don't remember a strike, but he says it was just one, like, he was there just for Jack, the one guy Jack would walk past every day. But now... Our competition on Missile Command, like if this had been a documentary being made at the time, it's possible we would have had the two highest Missile Command scores in the world. I don't know. We were getting very, very good. One day I came into the office, you'd opened up the machine and you'd change the spacings between bonuses. So I couldn't do that. Is that correct? No. What did you do when you opened up the machine? I was just looking for money and to see what was inside of it. I didn't know. What, I, no, no, I never, I never... Uh, so you didn't look i didn't think it was rigging i felt like the person who had the machine somehow had some control over certain settings and that maybe you'd gone in there 
and change the settings. But now you're saying you innocently went inside the machine. Well, I was in and just out of poking it. around. This is not innocent. I'm poking around. Yeah, that's all it was. But apropos of you being ahead of me as missile command, these were sleepless nights. I would stop thinking about the show and start thinking. A hundred and eighty-six thousand. It was How very. How did dis- he get two hundred and eighty-six thousand? <laughs> and I couldn't believe it myself. It was very <clears throat> distracting. You're in town because you're going to play. Are you still calling them the first national band? It's like a second incarnation of the first national band. First national band Redux. The first national band Redux playing some of your original songs at the Troubadour. When you were the host of the Troubadour, was that job 1965 that you got that job? I think it was a little earlier than like that. Like maybe 64? <clears throat> and yeah. you weren't the host, at, were you the host every night or you were the host one night per week? One night, it was kind of like an open night, Mike. The the lingua franca made us call it hoot, hoot night, the hoot nanny, and I was the hoot master. <clears throat> was it a more country-themed night than other nights or not necessarily? I guess you were using the word hoot nanny. We're using the word hoot nanny and people were coming up, standing up with their guitar by themselves and singing... Um, Black is the color of my true love's hair. And, like, who would be some of the names at that point who came through, even if people wouldn't have known who they were then? Well, sort of the who's who of the time. The Springfield and the Birds and Jim McGuinn on his own and Ron Statt and the Stone Ponies. And these were people that were hanging and would jump up on stage whenever they could. The list goes on. I mean, it's a... And I remember, like, when you and other musicians would talk about those days, it seemed to me like the male voice that you guys were in awe of was Harry Nielsen, and the female voice was Linda Ronstadt. Am I remembering that correctly? Fair enough, yeah, fair enough. Um, I think think Harry's voice came later, after he did Without You. Yes. And once uh, Lennon had given his imprimatur and... Yeah. So Lennon, in some ways, helped improve Harry's oh, voice. Oh, it was, it was... Well... But at some point helped trash it, maybe. Right. I think the, the two of them, partying and hanging out, destroyed each other. Um, but <clears throat> before that, Harry had this totally clear uh, tenor that sounded like the high whine of a jet. I mean, it was just crazy high crazy pure and and uh, so we all loved it but his songs weren't all that good and he was he was just kind of hanging out with his uh what do you drink Kahlua and milk Kahlua and milk. Uh, yeah when i saw you like eight years ago whenever that was in carmel before i hooked you up with watkins family hour to play with them had you not been playing music for a while or is that in my imagination like had you not played music publicly for a little while i had quit You'd literally quit. No, no, I wasn't so, playing at all. I didn't. I couldn't get traction, which in my my lexicon means support. I couldn't get anybody to say, "Oh, that is such a great song." Oh, that album that you did, and now, 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 boy, that was just that changed my life. And that never happened to me. I never had that kind of experience. And <clears throat> the more I thought about it, I thought that may have been. Um, the paint stripped off when I went through the monkey's machine. You know, they, they just cleaned it down to bare metal, and then that's what I was left with. So when I was <clears throat> when they rolled me out the back door into, into the pasture, I just sat there and rusted. So when I saw you in Carmel, and you said you hadn't played for a while, it felt, though, like 
It must have felt to me that you wanted to because I got you in touch with Sarah Watkins in Los Angeles. And I don't think I would have done that unless I felt like a part of you liked the idea of doing it if people wanted you to do it. Yeah, and candidly, that was a turning point. You're connecting me with the Watkins family and so forth. It was a, a, a you know, strange time and for you to put that out there as a possibility was brand new. And so it was it encouraged me. And then the other thing that happened after we got together up there, I got you in touch with Sarah Watkins, but also I with your encouragement started taking singing lessons. And then I did take a couple years of singing lessons. Really? With, yes, with Robert Edwards, who oh, yeah, also worked with your kids off and on, I believe, and yeah. maybe with you at one point. He lives in Carmel now. Mm -hmm. um, a lovely man who were like, I would go to his shit studio in <laughs> Sherman Oaks yes. every two weeks yes. and sing for him as he insisted on making eye contact with me through his mirror, which mama, was very uncomfortable. Mama, mama. Yes, yeah. I would do all the exercises. He would refuse to explain anything to me, so I still know nothing about music, but I definitely improved. I started karaokeing re uh, regularly, and so from going, from being afraid to sing in public, like now I'll do it. You will? That. Yes, it's a big part of my life. That now. is amazing to me. And just also to have someone tell me after all these years that I'm not tone deaf, after having been told that as a child, was curative too. That's one of the great lies. Nobody is tone deaf. It's like, Nobody dies. I mean, there's this massive truth that we all live under that none of us see, but everybody can sing. That's what we're doing now. Da 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 da. Now. Yeah, it's part. I know it's partly <clears throat> making that connection and not thinking of it as something insurmountable outside of yourself. Right. Um, but I'm very curious about that. None of us are going to die, Michael. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody dies. Where do Where do we go? What's the <clears throat> You stay right here. You just there's a pop. And you're, you're sitting right there. The uh, people have changed out a little bit. Everybody you ever knew is around. It is a, con it, it is a continuity. Once you step into the infinite, do we really go here? Where are we really going to go here? We, please do, yeah. Where else <laughs> am I going to go when I leave town? Okay. When you step off into the infinite, <clears throat> it's like discovering this giant balloon, this... this uh, this tent that sits over your sleeping bag at the campground. And you think, oh, if I ever live this sleeping bag, I'm in big trouble because I'm surrounded by nothing. I'm in the abyss outside the sleeping bag. And one night, the winds blow, the sleeping bag goes away, you wake up and you're complete surrounded with this protective, um, infinite space that is populated by totally benevolent other. It's there, and you can feel it. You and I can experience it a little bit on this side of that bardo with uh, psychedelics and a little bit of grass here and there. And say so There are people who can just take a hit off of cannabis and sail up into this space. <clears throat> but with the new powerful psychedelics, the DMTs and the LSDs and the ayahuascas and the psilocybins, et cetera, et cetera, you can step off into it in 15 seconds, enjoy it for two minutes, and come back, and you're a completely different person. Like, parts of personality <clears throat> that helps with, like, for me, control, fear. Like, what are, are there words that it helps dissipate for well, you? you just said two of them. 
control and fear, the first thing that goes away is the self. The idea that I am separated from the divine power. I don't care what you call the divine power. It could be math as far as I'm concerned or, you know, a, a cross stitch in, in needlepoint. But whatever it is that you're, <clears throat> it comes at, to you as a savior. I said, oh, you can do this. Pick that up. I can't pick that up. And then he said, here, pick it up. Then it's handed to you. And then your hand is held while you learn that you can hold it. The universe is operating as it should. I'm a part of it. Nobody dies. It's not bad. I mean, it sounds, actually, it sounds a lot better than what I've been holding on to over here. <laughs> um, Don't I know what you mean, babe? I've got two issues with hallucinogens, which I've never done. One is I'm protective of my brain. And also I feel like that moment that you're describing of, like, letting go of self, is there resistance before the letting go? I feel like I would resist letting go of self before I did it. You know what I mean? I do. And yeah, that's a, that is a common dialogue. That does not happen the way you just described it. What happens is letting go of self means realizing that there is no self there. Right. You don't have anything to let go of. And you think to yourself, I mean, <clears throat> the dream I had was I'm holding in the middle of a windstorm onto a, a colonnade of some kind, a giant pillar that goes up made out of marble. And the more the wind blows, the more my feet go out straight and back. And I think, if I let go of this thing, I am blown to the wind. And what happens is you get to the point where you can't hold on anymore, and you are forced to let go, and the column blows away. Oh, I love it. And you go, oh, I was holding on to something that wasn't doing me any good. And then the, okay, the other part I was talking about, like so far at least, Mary, you might have more information about this than I do, but the people I know who've tried ayahuasca, they like, they have to buy into someone's crazy system. So it's like, you go to the desert, everyone's staying in this house that sounds horrible. <laughs> everyone does it and they're in a room together. There's like all these rules about it based on the yeah, way, yeah, yeah, of, like yeah. you're having to buy into a guide. No, no, I would no. have a hard time choosing that guide Absolutely. whose house I'm going to. Me too. I'm right on your page and would never have done it had, I, had that been the case. My giant doses of LSD came to me because one of the producers, the monkeys, gave it to me. And he said, I've had this checked. It's really, I sent it to Arizona. Like, was it Ward Sylvester? No. I've had this checked. <laughs> yeah. And here it is. Here's a, here's a tablet of it. And, and he said, there's about, you know, there's about 50 hits here. So, you know, that's, that's a good couple of months you can have. I took them all at once. Oh, my God. I thought, you know, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and I took them all at once, all by myself. All by myself. She rests her case. <laughs> I mean, setting aside concepts of time, like how many days do you think this was that you took it all by yourself and you were home? Oh, it, it, it was a morning. It came and went. It was in the an morning. incredible morning. It was an incredible morning. And it didn't change my life. What it did was it said, everything you know is true. And all the stuff you have believed is true is wrong. And you just have to undo this stuff by letting go of the thing that's holding you down. Back at the studio, John and Nick Kroll reached out to Jack Handy. It'll be shocking if Jack Handy picks up. I've been trying to get him on the show for two months. He's probably not going to say anything that interesting because he was always silent when we worked together in 1985, and yet it's still going to be a feather in my cap. I think it's worth a shot. Here we go. 
praying Jack Handy picks up in New Mexico so he can say nothing to us. Oh, God. Oh, God, Jack. Hello? Jack, it's John Levenstein. You're here with my temporary co-host, Nick Kroll, on John Levenstein's retirement party. <laughs> this is Jack Handy here. Hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. It's Nick Kroll. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, thank you very much. Jack, I want to start by plugging your book because you're a doll to be on the show. When's your new book coming out? Uh, the new book is out. It's called Please Stop the Deep Thoughts. <laughs> and, and it's available at my website, which is uh, Jack Handy or deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. Deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. Buy his, new, buy his new book. Now, Jack, there's two things I need you to clear up from my interview with Michael Nesmith. Number one. Okay. We worked together in 1985 on television parts. You claim that you passed a single picketer with a sign every day walking into work at Hollywood Center Studios that none of us ever saw. How is this possible? Uh, we were at the Coppola Studios, right? The old Coppola yeah, Studios. Yeah, it was the old Zoetrope Studios. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I guess I came in the back thing, and he was a Teamster guy, uh, just there by himself, and I always felt bad. <laughs> Uh, walking past him, but uh, um, maybe you just chose not to see him. Maybe we, that was were it. the Teamsters on strike, but there was only one of them there, or was it just this one guy on strike? I, I guess it was, no, I guess it was the Teamsters, but they only had one guy there, I guess, one picketer there. Well, they they uh, had their, they worked with the union to say that only one Teamster needed to be picketing at any given moment. Teamsters get the best deals. <laughs> now, okay, question number two. Michael Nesmith okay. claims that he did not go into the belly of the missile command machine to change the settings to give him an advantage in his competition with me. He claims when I found him inside the machine <laughs> one day, he was just nosing around for loose change. Do you remember anything about my competition with him in missile command? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I was uh, I got hooked on Tetris. And uh, so you guys were off in your own uh, missile command world. But uh, I thought it was pretty funny that he just had this whole little playroom for us. You know, it's just like, hey, you guys go play. There's popcorn machine and nice video games. And, yeah, it was very nice. But it, it, won't, surprise, it won't surprise you, Nick. Um, Jack, I've worked with Nick a lot, and Nick has a better work ethic than I do, as do you, Jack. When Nesmith said, here's a playroom you can play, I played. Yeah. When, when you... When I, you what? Tell me I said, when, when Nesma said, here's a playroom, go ahead and play, I played. I would say yeah. you, you played in a more measured amount like you would expect an adult to. <laughs> Jack, we're going to let you go soon because the one promise you made to me is that you would be on the show so I could say Jack Handy was on the show and we've accomplished this. But there's <laughs> one story. I don't know if people know this and I don't know if it's something you talk about. I full don't. I don't fully understand the story, but did you have something to do with the movie Three Amigos? Well, yes. Um, um, my friend Carmen Finestra and I wrote the original script uh, for Three Amigos, which was called The Three Caballeros. And it was a very funny script, and it got tossed aside by uh, Steve Martin and Lorne Michaels and Randy Newman, and they went off and wrote Three Amigos, which... In my opinion, my humble opinion, it's not as funny as the script we did. But so it, our, our script got thrown uh, under the bus, as it were. And was yours based on your original idea? No, it was based on, he gave us like a paragraph of the idea. 
And uh, so he, you know, I guess the original story was his. And then we went off and uh, took us about a year to write it. And it was, uh, it was a funny script. Was it a funny year? <laughs> no, not, not after, not after our script got thrown in the garbage. I, it wasn't a funny year. Jack, can I give you just a quick, I, so I went to a school in high school uh, a one semester thing on uh, on a farm, and uh, I I had realized at that point I wanted very much to be funny, and so I would do like we would do sketches, and we had a lot of like group forty. It was all forty five kids, and uh, and we would all sort of were performers in some form or other, and one kid would get up and just read deep thoughts and get <laughs> huge laughs off of it. And everyone was like, that guy's funny. And it made me crazy uh, because I was like, yes, well, this is funny. But Jack Handy is funny. This kid is just reading Jack's material. And it made me crazy. So unfair. I know. Yeah, it, it, made it was. Me. Yeah. Yeah. At least he had good taste anyway. He so. did. And he had a decent timing. Not not as good as yours, but it was not bad. <laughs> well, actually, on television parts, Nesmith would read the deep thoughts and his timing wasn't as good as Jack's either. Yeah. It was uh, good. though. Oh, Nes- Nesmith yeah. was Nesmith did well. Nesmith's timing was pretty good, but just Jack's yeah, is a little yeah. better. But he was at least paying oh, you for you. that work. This kid was getting it for free, and it was making me crazy. <laughs> That's a distinction. Um, and now, Jack, you live in New Mexico, right? How many dogs? Yes. I have one dog and two cats here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> wow. That was a little Jack candy there. Yeah. Jack, all right. Um, look, follow my dogs on Instagram. Salt and wound, Jack. You'll see pictures of two dogs every day. What's it called? Salt and wound. Okay. Also the name of my production yeah. company. And um, should, I retire to, <laughs> should I retire to New Mexico, Jack Handy? <laughs> sure. Yeah, come on out. It's fun. We sat down with Sarah Watkins to talk about her connection to Michael Nesmith. But, like, audiences, I don't think they realize how much they affect yeah, a show. Yeah, I don't think they care. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people would care. They just don't think that, they don't think of it as an interaction because they're used mm-hmm. to either sitting in front of a TV or a movie theater thing where they're just receiving and they're not having to give anything back. Yeah. And when you're on stage and you're sitting in, and you're, you're facing people in the front row who are on their phones um, and you can see them on their, on their phones, it's so disheartening. Mm-hmm. And, or like they'll sit in the front row and their arms are crossed yeah. and they're really like, they're, they won't, they don't really clap. They don't smile because it's probably intimidating spatially if they're in the front row and they're like five feet from the band. Like I get wanting yeah. to feel a little protective of yourself. Oh yeah, but it's uh, it it's affects funny. the band. It totally affects our sh- our performance. I'm not experienced as you, but I've noticed that if I'm playing something, I'll just hone in on the person with the worst face, which is usually in the front, mm-hmm. and it's just like disgust. And then afterwards, they're like, "That was great." Yeah, because they don't think that you're actually seeing them. No. But we see it. Or they don't think, I know, we totally do. And we see all the blue faces lit up and mm-hmm. and people who, maybe they're enjoying the show and they're tweeting about it. And they're like, uh, maybe they're buying your record right. in, on their phone <laughs> right. while they're at the show. You, like, you right. never know. But it. It, it definitely is hard to, it takes you out of it as a performer. It puts you in a no-win situation, too, because you can't push in response to that. You know what I mean? Like right. when they're not giving that to you, yeah. you, ca- you can't scold them. And you can't compensate by 
giving a crazy amount of energy back. But if you completely mirror them, it's going to be too little energy. So it creates bad choices in both directions in a way. Yeah, I think people try and solve that issue in different ways. Some people confront it very straightforwardly, like, let's all put our phones down and try and be in the moment. And half the crowd will cheer and the other other half will feel like they're being scolded or... Something Like my way, I'm pretty sure, would be finding a way that I could pretend or convince myself that I don't need their reaction, mm. which gives a weird – which then I would give a weird sort of defended performance, I would think, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't hurt me. I'll hurt you. Yeah, you've got, you've got to deal with that yourself, John. I think you've got some, some <laughs> Look, I'm not a performer, so it's fine. Thank now, <laughs> Sarah Watkins, Watkins Family Hour, welcome to John Levenstein's retirement party with my co-host, Mary Kobayashi. Great to be here. Do we have that Nesmith bit? Not with me, no. Okay. When we interviewed Michael Nesmith, he, um, he confirmed for me that when I saw him in Carmel like seven years ago, whenever that was, and he told me that he hadn't played music for a while and he didn't think anyone was interested in his songs, that like that conversation we had and hooking him up with you got him playing country music again. And when Mary and I were talking to him, he was saying basically he didn't think anyone wanted to hear it. He was depressed about it. And just his experience of his country music was just of it not being received. Mm-hmm. And so if no one was going to receive it, it's kind of like we're, we're talking about. He didn't want to put out all the energy to do it, yeah. I think, is what was happening. Um, I I believe I got you a message through Twitter or somehow because I didn't know you at the time in order to hook Nesmith up with you. Because when he told me he would like to play, I wasn't friends with that many musicians here, but I knew that you sang one of his songs in your show. Yeah. Which was why I thought of you and also because you seemed like a welcoming group uh, with older musicians. But once I got (laughs) – well, it's true. Like you're you're very like – not discriminatory as far as generations go, which I think is nice with who plays with you, you know. I come from a tradition of music where the older the better. Like you you've sort of proved your worth for decades and it's you know it's it's older actually the opposite. Is better, yeah. But right. not oh. but not everyone <laughs> values it and Nesmith was feeling not valued at that point. But anyway, when I got him in touch with you Here's the whole part of the story I missed because what happened then and it led to him playing with you guys down here, which I also missed. Well you, I uh, the first time I think I met Nez was briefly when you said that you were going to introduce him to me. Did he know me at all? No. No. Okay. So I think somewhere in between that interaction that you had with him and when I actually m- met him to play with him, I think was at the Libero Theater in Santa Barbara, and we played that song "Different Drum," which he wrote, and that I have sung a lot over the years. And we were walking to the car, and he was walking to the car uh, after the show, and um, and he complimented our performance of it. I said, "Thank you very much." He said, "I actually wrote that song," and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's th- thank you for writing." You know, and 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 all of a sudden, um, the interaction was sort of flipped on its on its side, and um, and I was just kind of blown away. And then I think you did contact me through Twitter, and. Somehow he agreed to, it was like this blind date where he agreed to come down to Largo and join the family hour for, I think he played like five songs maybe Well, I think he wanted to be asked to do something. I think that was the thing. So like when I contacted you, I didn't know what you were going to be open to and I didn't know if you were going to ask him to do the show. But like 
that's sort of what he wanted. He wanted to know that someone gave a shit, I think. Well, don't we all? I don't blame him. Yeah. Uh, and when people heard that he was, especially in the band, heard that he was coming down, it was it was very exciting. Everyone was thrilled. All the musicians were thrilled that he was coming down. Different Drum is a fantastic song. Isn't it great? I love it so much, yeah. He, uh, I, I learned it from Linda Ronstadt's version. Me too. When I grew up mm-hmm. listening to it, one of her greatest hits, I think the volume one. And... Uh, Evidently, there was another verse that she didn't sing. The, the original arrangement for the song after the bridge uh, goes into a whole other verse. Hmm. And uh, she didn't sing that verse. She she just decided not to. And um, he uh, he rewrote the verse for me to sing. So he, he ended up giving, like, it felt it was like a custom verse. That's a high honor. I know. It was right. so sweet. Yeah. Uh, he... Uh, he he rewrote um, some of the lyric to make it make more sense for it to be coming from a, a female, cool. and um, yeah, it was really really kind. He he's a he was a he's a very kind person. Well, yes, there's that, and also as far as his music goes, like I love his country songs. I think you guys were especially appreciative. I think that your pedal steel guitar player, I Greg Lease. Greg, I think, had maybe even studied with or gone to the old shop of Nesmith's pedal steel guitar player. Does that mm-hmm. sound right? Red yeah. Roads? Mm-hmm. I believe so. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of respect for, for Nez in, in the music field, too. It's, it's a shame when people like that don't feel uh, like there's a place for them anymore. Well, in his case, it was happened when he was young with the Monkees because, you know, after the Monkees, he did his first national band songs, which were the albums of country songs, which mm-hmm. were some of his best songs, which are the ones he's playing again now that he was playing with you with guys. Shelly and Joanne. Yeah, Shelly's Blues and Joanne and uh, I've got the two other ones. Propinquity, is that what it is? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I'm trying to think if that's the word. Anyway. So I think at that point, it was still shortly after the Monkees. And even though it was appreciated by musicians at the time, and also his involvement with the Flying Burrito Brothers in the beginning, I think he was really involved with a lot of the country rock stuff in L.A. starting in the late 60s Hmm. into the early 70s. He kept doing it on his own after the Monkees. But I think a lot of it in his mind was dismissed because of the Monkees. And then he saw all of his other country cohorts hitting it big. You Mm -hmm. know, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, and all those guys who were doing kind of that same area as him. And I think it it depressed him at that point. Yeah, I could see why that would be depressing. I wonder if he also... Uh, because he does have so so many uh, other interests and di- seems to dig into these other fields so deeply. I wonder if he was feeling, was he feeling um, antsy to like dig into different things and and get more on the tech side of things? Or was it, was he disillusioned and then he went to I know, it's like, that stuff? He would have to answer that. But in my mind, he's one of those guys who like, he wants to be the best. He's controlling in certain ways. And so if he's in a field and he's not feeling like he's at the top of that field in that moment, mm-hmm. he might segue to where he's going to feel he's in the top of that field. So when he went and did Elephant Parts, which was combining music and comedy, uh-huh. At that point, he was perceived for a while again as being at the top of his field, which was a music and comedy hybrid. Uh-huh. But I think he would have wanted to get that same acknowledgement for music at some point. I'm sure, yeah. 
And then the 80s, once, like, as a performer, he wasn't necessarily on the top. Like, then he was making independent movies in the 80s, like, Repo, like Repo Man. MTV, the beginning of MTV. Yeah, so that, so that was entrepreneurial. But so in general, I think he would go where he felt like he had control, where he had room to operate, right. and where he would be perceived with respect. And I think music is an area where uniquely he was, like, respected and not respected at the same time. Yeah, well, it's hard to – I think so many people are respected by uh, – it's that like talking shop kind of field where people who are in his field, but maybe, uh, you know, not receiving the notoriety that say the monkeys had on a mass public level. That's a hard thing too. That's a hard bar to hit every time. Once you, once you get there, if you get there right out of the gate to the odds of you getting lightning struck twice are. Well, in his case though, even during the monkey success, he was angry about it. You know what I mean? Because he wasn't the, creatively satisfied. Yeah, the word came out they weren't doing their own music. Yeah, and then even once they were, they were treated like they were a bunch of idiots. Like he was a guy back then ripping up million dollar checks and putting his fist through a wall. Like that's right. how he how frustrated he was when he was a monkey. Right. Wow. And a lot of people look look at it and say, well, that's what you would hope for, but for him, it kind of wasn't. Yeah, not if you have actually if you have things you want to say and you want to be taken seriously. No, that would be that would be terrible. And he was working at the time with a crowd of musicians who were taken seriously. Right. You know what I mean? And suddenly on some level he was and he Gosh, wasn't. Gosh. That'd be so frustrating. I like when he um yeah, I mean when he came down and started playing the songs are so beautiful. Uh and the rain and the the, the chords and the melodies are gorgeous. Um it was uh it was very joyful for everyone, I feel like. Definitely for for us in the band, you know. And I think he um I think he was a little nervous at first, right? Because he hadn't been doing it. You were it's I'm so sure. hard to believe that you weren't at that show. Well, because I was in Florida. I was working on a show. So when I picked up with it again was after he did that show with you mm-hmm. guys here, was when Along with having his own money, because Nesmith's mother invented liquid paper, right. he also has this foundation that he's, that she started that supports the arts. And so I believe it was the foundation that paid for him to go to Texas, to Marfa, Texas, with Watkins Family Hour. And I'd, Really? Yes. Makes, hmm. And I'd missed the concert in L.A. because I was in Florida at the time. So I did go to Texas with you guys. So that's the thing I did go. And was was that the first time that Watkins Family Hour ever went on the road? I believe so. I think it was the first time. We had, we only did a few things. We've only done a few things on the road. Um, but I think that was the first field trip that we took. And it was a miracle that we all, <laughs> that we all were able to do it. And I think, it, truthfully, the only way that all of us uh, – um, Sort of felt like, well, I should explain. The people in the Watkins family are a band. Everyone has other gigs um, and are quite busy with sessions or on tour with other people. And so for schedules to line up and then for everyone just to feel like taking an extra trip for the fun of it, mm-hmm. um, it's just really surprising that it that it that, cool. that everyone came together to do it. And it, I think it's absolutely because Nez, it was for Nez to, to have a chance to, to play more with him and, um, and to go to Marfa. It was my first time to Marfa. There's no reason for goodbyes. You're just a running scared. And that's something I won't buy. So you lose. I won't let you go with no 
that was us singing. And that was us singing. Um, I don't know anything about copyright law. Do you? Plausible deniability. You know, I feel like, first of all, that was a song that Michael Nesmith wrote. Michael Nesmith, who we were just talking to. I love you, Michael. Michael seemed pleased that I was taking singing lessons. I'm hoping the Stitcher Premium lawyers let a little bit of that song go on so Michael can hear it. Yeah, he's one of your best friends. He'd be really screwed up if he sued you. But I can see him doing it as a prank. And of course, I would love it if he sued me. Like a prank. Yeah, like a... Like we talked about when we were writing a Franklin Bash, like one of those Redford Newman, uh, Clooney Damon things. But um, it would be great if he sued me, but I don't think Stitcher would love it as much, even if Mm -hmm. Michael and I would be having the time of our lives. Right, right. That's a good point. What it would do if Michael sued me maybe over us having just sung a little bit of his song as a gift to him and to show him that I took seriously when he said to sing, uh, to take singing lessons. I'm drinking tequila, by the way. We'll get to that in a second. Um, as I do, like the little I understand about copyright law, maybe it's helpful to do like a little bit of criticism. Right. Then you're allowed to do fair use. So that song of Michael's that we just sang, I love that song. Could have been better. It was, an er- <laughs> it was an early uh, country rock song here in Los Angeles. Michael doesn't get enough credit for introducing country rock in Los Angeles in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. I hope that gives us some fair use license, what yeah. I just said. Do you know what criticism means? Um, that is one of my favorite songs of all time, but here's me tr- trying to protect us from being sued. That song only had like, uh, three choruses. Nice. You know what? If that, does, if that's not going to inoculate us from a lawsuit, I don't know what will. Same. Now. Brutal. Michael. Roasted. <laughs> Michael was urging, Michael was urging me to try, um, some kind of hallucinogen. We've been. At one point this season, we believed when we talked to that guy who works at Caesar's Palace now in the first episode who threw up when I was on stage in Aspen in the early 2000s, I thought we would go there and we would take mushrooms in Las Vegas and that would be my first time taking psychedelics in my life. Mm -hmm. We didn't get together to um, go to Las Vegas. Then we thought the end of the episode, we're going to do it here at my house. We're going to microdose mushrooms that's going to be the cliffhanger at the end of the season. I have not successfully scored mushrooms, which yeah. is why I'm drinking tequila. I made a split second decision that it's the closest alcohol to mushrooms, or maybe it's close to peyote. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. Are you looking to me for confirmation? That is, I'm looking to you with wounded, watery eyes, <laughs> wondering why everyone else in the world who Classic. like wants to do mushrooms is able to procure them somehow. And I'll tell you, this weekend, I went to see a friend, and she put together, I'd asked her about that I wanted to do this for a first time. She was very helpful. Like, you've talked to, you've come to the right person. Mm-hmm. I went to meet her. I got stuck in traffic in the middle of a parade. I'm a half hour late there. She'd put together practically a whole syllabus for me about mushrooms versus LSD versus peyote versus ayahuasca. And uh, in the end, I sort of asked her as discreetly as I possibly could after thanking her for all the information, like, how does she know any way that I could get hold of like a really, really small amount of mushrooms? Yeah. And at that point, the wall went up. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, I feel like John Daly really screwed us over by having to leave town. I think you think that he would have been a connection point. Um, the other thing is, like, I didn't, I wasn't asking all the people I could have asked also because I feel like it's the kind of thing you're supposed to ask in person as opposed to like shooting too many texts around with emojis of mushrooms. <laughs> uh-huh. 
<laughs> using code words that people never understand. Uh, yeah. So again, I haven't ent- I haven't entered that world at this point. There's nothing illicit about buying marijuana anymore. Yeah. I briefly attempted. And let me say this lecture about hallucinogens was long. It was over an hour long. I did learn a lot about how to go about it if I could have procured them. But that part was left out. Yeah. And, and the the last lecture I'd get in that was that I got that was that in depth was a Bitcoin lecture from my friend who paid me back a loan after many years in Bitcoin, That's but right. wanted to sincerely explain it to me at the same time. That was a longer lecture than the hallucinogen lecture. But the difference was yeah. my friend who gave me the Bitcoin lecture, part of the lecture was installing the fraction of a Bitcoin that he was giving me to pay back an old loan, an old uh, loan on my computer. Yeah. He was giving you the thing he was talking about. Yes. Fair. That's the difference. Yeah. 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 Oh man. So, yeah. um, so I'm drinking tequila, which I believe has one of the active ingredients of peyote. It's agave or something. Oh, is that the same thing? Or is that different? Yeah, you're on. Am I making that up? No, you're not. I forget what the name is, but it starts with an A. But I'm not going to go that far because of my fear of throwing up. I didn't. Even, I did not even throw up the night that I did Drunk History. Um, I went to bed with a large wooden salad bowl <laughs> and woke up with it in my bed. Classic. Now, one day, we hope to do a live show. Yes. Again, we really wanted to finish the season strong. So we finished it somewhat, somewhat strong that we got my first boss, Michael Nesmith. Mm-hmm. He gave a very interesting uh, talk about a lot of uh, life-affirming issues, I'll say. Jack Handy, hard to get hold of, not heavy on content, but we got him. Uh-huh. Sarah Watkins, lovely. But yeah, at one point we yeah. thought the whole season is going to culminate mushrooms for the first time. No, that's out. Yeah. Then we thought... I talked to Nesmith about singing, maybe some singing. Maybe we'll take mushrooms and we'll sing. We sang a little. We're not sure exactly what we can do. We want to sing some more. At some point, we hope to do a live show where we get to sing a couple songs for people who are actually there. So like, yeah, all of our, (laughs) there they are. And uh, I think like if I were capable of delaying gratification until we ever did a live show uh-huh. it would have been a great way to end a retirement party um on stage with this song with me saying basically hey i'm not going anywhere yeah but i'm not <laughs> capable of delaying gratification so instead we're going to sing a fraction of it tonight whatever earwolf lets us get away with yeah um, and then we can sing the whole version when you actually retire in nine years yeah and it won't be a surprise because we will have blown part of the song but still i you know i think it's i think it's worth doing all right let's do um, it you know what before we uh, before we sing, and let's say, let's say this is a what do we call this? We're at my house. We haven't really rehearsed the song. I would say it's like a uh, rehearsal for the live show. We'll eventually do. Yeah, and we'll be at the end where I reveal I'm not leaving town, but they know that already. Right, we all knew that all along before this even started. That was the fun of it, wasn't it, Mary? Yes. Any final thoughts on the season? No, I don't think it's over. So. Nah, it's like a see ya, see you soon. I mean, I do have a feeling we'll be back because Stitcher hasn't shared the numbers with me, but confidentially, I'm pretty sure we're a big fucking hit. <laughs> me too. Which is really why I always dreamed of a reason to stay. <laughs> no. All right, no. here we go, Mary. Let's go to the pi- let's go to the piano.
got to think doing mushrooms is different from drinking tequila with agave in it. Mm -hmm. Like if I'd done mushrooms, like to some extent, even if I'd microdosed, I would have like a little feeling around hallucination, colors being more vibrant. And instead I'm just drunk, but it's on tequila, not bourbon. Yeah. And instead we recorded a Michael Nesmith song together. Instead of going to Joshua Tree, like, okay, so instead of taking mushrooms and going to Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas or Joshua Tree Uh and like having an experience like Michael suggested where maybe I could get in touch with the infinite um, with a side of me that's not going to be quite so afraid of death. Maybe I could let go of some of my control issues instead. Maybe we stayed at my house. (laughs) We ordered pizza from the same old place. (laughs) Yeah. That we always order from. I got tequila drunk. Yeah. And I wouldn't have it any other way, Mary. Me neither. And Molly jumped up on the piano bench while I was playing, which was great. I'm going to keep I all mean, this. I want to say thank you to our fans, but like, do we, ha- do we have fans? We'll, we'll find out. Someone will tweet back at you. You're welcome. You know, okay. Fans. Thank you to the fans. And fans, if you hear this, and if you are a fan, if you hear me saying thank you to the fans, which is like my saying thank you to the fans is like Jim Carrey before he was discovered writing a check to himself for $10 million. <laughs> I don't know if we have fans. And if you're a fan, please tweet at us. You're welcome. Please, please, please. Both of us. Mary. Yes. Thank you for a uh, for a lovely season. Now. Thank you for a lovely season. What's your plan this summer? Uh, I'm going to go to Seattle. And disappear. Yeah, that's what you were supposed to do, which is funny to hear you use the word season. Uh, so, this you're, supposed okay, to be, so I'm staying in town. Know, um, uh-huh. When I do leave town, it's going to be fast. You won't even see the skid marks, but mm-hmm. it's not time yet. I mean, I think that's what we all real. <laughs> I think that's what we all realized through this party. And in the meantime, Mary, we all did. You're going to Seattle for the summer. Yeah, I can't take it anymore. And what is it going to be fast? Will we see the skid marks? You won't even know I left. I'm doing an Irish goodbye. I'll maybe be back in a week. Gotta get out of Los Angeles. You know so how like, it is. For purposes of emails, texts, or whatever, let's say the president of Paramount calls. That person might not know that you're answering in Seattle. And I will not. And I will not. I, 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 oh, dear. You guys, we're going to end it because Hazel just <laughs> ran through the microphone and almost knocked the computer over. What it's a great finale. What a great finale of breaking all great. the equipment, Hazel. Um, you're my only friends. I hope to see you all again sometime. Is that sad? Not at all. Thank you. You're my only friends too. (laughs) Well, that sounded angry. I am angry. How do parties end? I know. I've never been there at the end of a party. Yeah. As you know, I've never been there at the end of a party when people make sloppy decisions. So I don't know how parties end. I know how they begin. I sure as hell know how they begin. You know what, John? Let's do a classic party ending to this. Bye. Text me. Bye. See ya. That's how. Okay, I'm just gonna go out with her. I'll be back. (laughs) Accurate. John Levenstein's Retirement Party is a Stitcher original. It's edited and produced by me, Mary Kobayashi, with Salt and Moon Entertainment. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producer is Colin Anderson, and our engineer is Ryan Connor. Follow us on Twitter for no reason. John is very active. John is at John Levenstein, and I'm at Mary Coco. Thanks for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. 
Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.